Well, today is the Sunday during the Octave of All Saints when we celebrate the Feast of All Saints here at All Saints. <laughs> and it's actually our 41st birthday as a parish as well. So uh, that's, that's, that's pretty neat. Uh, we, we are 41 years old this weekend. Uh, for those, those of you who attended our midweek discipleship class over the last few weeks or listened to the audio podcast that went out on Christianity and Halloween, it's uh, the audio from that class. There's your commercial, by the way, for the podcast. You can get it through the website. Um, you may recall that the Feast of All Saints is one of the younger feasts of the church. It uh, came into being, it was originally introduced in the 5th century as a spring feast in Rome, and it was just a local feast originally. By the 11th century, it was moved to November 1st and became a feast for the entire Western church. The main purpose for this feast day, for all saints, is to remember and celebrate the saints in heaven who don't have their own special feast day. A bunch of folks do have their own feast day, so this is for everybody else. This is the catch-all day. Whether they're people that are known as heroes of the faith or saints whose lives are only known to God himself. The word saint in, means holy one or one who has been set apart. And in scriptures, the word saint doesn't only apply to the church triumphant who's in heaven. It doesn't only or even especially apply to those heroes of the faith who have gone before us and are held up as examples for us to follow. Rather, in the scriptures, the term saint refers to all of God's people, past, present, and future. So there is a sense, there is a sense where we here and now both aspire to become saints and are already saints by virtue of Christ's blood. This is one of those already and not yet aspects of the faith, similar to how the kingdom of God is already here because of Christ's first coming, but we also anticipate its fullness with his second coming. We anticipate its consummation. This already and not yet is similar to how we can say we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved by Christ. By virtue of the promises God has made to you in your baptism, the promises that you cling to by faith, you have the down payment of your future perfected sainthood to the point where you can with, certain, with certainty be called a saint now. And in scriptures, um, St. Paul especially does call those who are currently alive saints uh, as he's addressing them. Well, our Collect for All Saints Day, that's on page 256 in your prayer book, page 256. This sums up uh, this idea in one of the most eloquent prayers in our liturgy. Page 256, we pray. O Almighty God, who has knit together thine elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of thy Son, Christ our Lord, grant us grace so to follow thy blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those unspeakable joys which thou hast prepared for those who unfeignedly love thee through the same thy Son, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So there is a single communion and fellowship of all of God's elect. Election is one of those theological concepts that's often misunderstood. 
It simply means that God chooses all who are brought into his family. It, nobody comes to faith because they're smarter, more pious, or better than their unbelieving neighbor. No, we only come because God has brought us in, and our faith is itself a gift from God. Sometimes this leads people to think that it implies something unfair or arbitrary about God's grace. Well, the truth is, he knows his plan, and we don't. He has the big picture. We have only a very little picture of the way things are going. And if God were going to be perfectly fair, or rather, he is perfectly fair, but if he were going to be fair by our standards, by what humans mean as being fair, no one would be adopted into his kingdom. Because all of us are guilty of damnable sin. None of us um, have, have kept God's law. We have all broken it again and again and again, and we continue to break it again and again. None of us would choose God without him creating within us a desire for him. In our corrupted humanity, we all love ourselves and our sin much more than God. The uh, analogy I like to use is, is a toddler who uh, will never choose broccoli over candy, given the choice. <laughs> if we were given our own, you know, we, we were given our own choice, um, you know, little kids would always have candy or cookies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snack. That's how we are when it comes to our sin. Of ourselves, we will always choose the candy of sin. But God, in his mercy and wisdom, changes our hearts. God has chosen for himself a remnant that we call God's elect. Well, the other side of the coin is sometimes this leads people to fear, wondering whether they have indeed been chosen. They sit there and say, oh my gosh, am I part of the elect? Well, the very fact that you'd worry about it is proof that you belong to him. Those who are not elect don't worry about it. That's the nature of election. You don't think about it if he, if, if he hasn't done it in, in you. You want your candy. <laughs> Article 7 in our 39 Articles of Religion puts it this way. Election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying, that is, killing the works of the flesh and their earthly members, and drawing up in their mind to high and heavenly things. So in other words, when we remember who we are in Christ, that we are saints who are destined to be with him in glory, chosen by the Father to be co-heirs with Jesus, adopted into his family, well, this helps us to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. It causes us to think of God and kindles up our love for him. As St. John saith, we love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 So not only does this make us saints, but it also gives us fellowship with the saints in heaven. There's one communion and fellowship in Christ's mystical body. That fellowship crosses time, space, race, and even denomination. The tragic and frankly sinful divisions in the church are just in the here and now. They're temporal. They're not eternal. They're not ontological. 
Just like Israel and Judah in the Old Testament remained God's people, and they were, all, they were both heirs of Abraham, despite the fact that they'd be, become two kingdoms politically, so too is that the case for all who are united to Christ by faith and baptism, even if we are sadly, and again, sinfully, not in institutional communion with each other right now. Our For the Epistle passage from Revelation paints this big picture quite well. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 7-2, Revelation 7-2, and that's also found on page 256 of your prayer book, page 256. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Let's uh, do like the prayer book and skip down to verse 9. We don't, the, uh, the, the in-between verses are the list of the tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. We don't need to rehearse that. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Well, the first part of this passage shows the 144 who were sealed and set apart for God Um, which is another picture of that concept of election. They were sealed, set apart by God. Some theologians see the 144,000 as specifically talking about Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes of Israel and all that sort of thing, Um, symbolically or maybe literally. It looks a lot more symbolic to me than, than anything else. Other theologians see it as a representation of the entire church, Jew and Gentile alike, who have been grafted together into the olive tree of Israel. And betraying my biases, I tend to lean this way myself. Regardless, though, of which interpretation is correct, the second part of our reading speaks of this great multitude who are before the throne, people from every tribe and nation and tongue, that so many that you could not count them. St. John, in this, vision, in this vision, saw everyone from Abraham to David, to his brother apostles, to you and me in that multitude. All who belong to Christ. It's amazing to think that one of those languages that he heard was English, a language that hadn't even been invented yet. Among that, every tribe would include Americans and Nigerians and Mexicans and even Texans (laughs) worshiping right alongside the patriarchs and the church fathers. The curse of Babel was reversed, not by making us all speak Hebrew or Greek 
or Latin when we're in the heavenly temple, but by sanctifying every language for God's glory. Let's pick up in verse 13 where we see what it's like to be a saint before God's throne. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. That's a good answer when you don't know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, the fact that this multitude is without number suggests that the great tribulation it speaks of is not some time of horror and terror described in the Left Behind books, but it's that very fight that we all go through in this world. While we're on this side of eternity, we will always be set upon by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We will constantly be at war with those enemies. This is why we're traditionally called the the church militant, the church at war. It's not a war against flesh and blood. It is not a crusade, the way we think about it in, in historical terms. But rather, it's a war against sin and the author of sin. But when we're in heaven, that fight is over. And we're victorious. We've passed from being the church militant to becoming the church triumphant. This can only be accomplished by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Just as the Israelites had to have the Lamb's blood on their doorposts to have the angel of death pass over them at the first Passover described in the Exodus, so too we must be washed in Christ's blood if we're to be numbered among the saints. No one becomes a saint by his or her own special effort. No, those heroic and saintly deeds that we remember from those heroes of the faith, they come by virtue of being washed in Christ's blood. We remember this each time we partake of the Paschal, that is Passover feast, in Holy Communion. That's why we pray in our Anglican liturgy, Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen. Our Revelation passage goes on to describe what it means to be among the saints. It means serving in God's temple, being sheltered by God's presence. No more do we hunger, thirst, there's no more scorching heat, blistering sun, or tears. The Lamb of God is our shepherd, protecting and nourishing us. The Lord himself is the light in heaven, sustaining rather than burning us. So in short, we are freed up from our worldly cares. In the homily against the fear of death, which was written by an anonymous English reformer in the 16th century, we're told of three reasons why the world fears death. 
First of all, it fears losing its treasures and prestige. Second of all, fear of suffering, which often comes with death. We suffer, we get sick. And third, the fear of hell. But for the Christian who who is united to Christ, these are ultimately not issues. We know that our inheritance in Christ is better than anything that the world can offer. We know that any earthly suffering will ultimately yield to the joys of heaven. And we know that Christ has redeemed us from hell. This is what it means to be among the saints. But in our collect, we also prayed for God's grace so that we may follow the blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living. That's why we do indeed look at the saints in heaven, especially those heroes of the faith, to be our examples. That's why in our chapel we have these pictures of our biblical saints on the, on, on the wall. That's our family portrait. These are our family pictures, people that we can be reminded of what they did and we can, we can do what they did. Chances are one of those saints has struggled with and been through with whatever you're going through. If you've ever struggled with lust, read St. Augustine's Confessions and see how he dealt with that. If you've ever had to despair over a lost child or a lost loved one, remember Augustine's mother, St. Monica, who prayed 30 years for her son's salvation. He was a rank pagan, and then he becomes a doctor of the church. 30 years worth of prayer. If you've ever been like me and had to battle that inner Pharisee, read what St. Paul has to say. The list could go on and on. None of them were perfect. All of them were sinners just like you and me. But they were all faithful to the end. One of the best things about the narrative portions of Scripture is that it doesn't sugarcoat the lives of the characters. We see St. Thomas's doubt. We see Jeremiah, the prophet's depression. We see St. Paul and St. Barnabas go through the very first church split. But in the end, God always turns things around for his glory. When we know that we have been baptized into Christ and thus have sainthood for our inheritance, that helps us to live lives that are more like the saints here and now. Not because we get special brownie points before God, but because deep down, that's who we really are. That's one of the other things that's glorious about the saints in heaven. They no longer have sin. They are human in a way that we were always meant to be. Our humanity is corrupted. Theirs is perfected. As Christians, that's who we are deep down also. So when we read the Beatitudes from today's gospel or we recite the Ten Commandments like we just did earlier, or uh, Father Isaac once again reminds us of the bound-in-duty passage from the Catechism, uh, to follow Christ, to worship God every Sunday in his church, (laughs) and to work and pray and give for the spread of the kingdom. We don't come to these law passages like a toddler who's been told that it's bedtime. No, we realize the goodness of these things we realize that they help us to live up to who we really are. And we acknowledge that our flesh 
and the world and the devil himself are against us when we live up to that calling. We acknowledge that it's going to be a struggle. We acknowledge that we sometimes and will fail. But we know that Christ has bought us with his blood and he's enabled us by his spirit to live as saints, following the examples of those saints who have gone before us, making us, as we pray in the liturgy, very members incorporate into the mystical body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the blessed company of all faithful people and are also heirs through hope of God's everlasting kingdom by the merits of his most precious death and passion, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.